Today's show is brought to you by Laser Away. Labor of Love listeners can save up to 75% on laser services at Laser Away. Go to laserawaycom love now to schedule your free consultation. Today's episode is also brought to you by Open Account, a podcast that gets personal about making, losing, and living with money. Created by Umqua Bank and hosted by Sujin Pak, download and subscribe to Open Account wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Labor of Love, a podcast about marriage, family, and making peace with the people we live with. I'm Lori Leibovich, editor of RealSimple.com. Though I've talked often on this show about how screens and social media can be detrimental to honest, real-life conversation and connection, there are instances in which the opposite is true. Such is the case with So Sad Today, a Twitter account that leaves no taboo unexplored, acute anxiety, porn preferences, body loathing, and addiction— The deeply personal account has connected its creator, Melissa Broder, to more than 350,000 followers, many of whom reach out to her directly to share their own very personal stories. In her debut book of personal essays, also called So Sad Today, Broder goes deeper into the themes she explores on Twitter, including her open marriage to a man who suffers from a debilitating disorder— Broder writes the horoscope column for Lenny Letter and is the author of four collections of poetry, including the just-released Last Sext. Melissa, welcome to The Labor of Love. Thanks for having me. In the book, you talk about your marriage and you talk about the decision to marry your husband who suffers from an autoimmune disorder. Can you talk a little bit about being married to someone with a serious illness? So um, my husband has a neuroimmune disease, which limits his killer cell function. So when we were first together 12 years ago, when we were first dating, he would get sick for about three months at a time, um, which is a pretty long time, and and it manifested like chronic mono. But then he'd be well um, for about nine months. And when I say well, I mean like he would be able to exercise, we could travel, And as we've stayed together, his relapses of the illness have gotten closer and closer together. So now it's very rare that he is actually somewhat healthy. And when I say healthy, I mean like able to walk more than three blocks. When he can walk like four or five blocks, we consider that healthy now. I was just going to say in the book you write, I didn't know that the illness would be another body in the marriage, always present even when we are not together. How so? Well, when you live with someone with a chronic illness, the illness is like a shadow um, itself and it impacts everything you do, especially when, when it's something as pervasive as what he has. So you always have to, it's, it's like if you had a child and you had to always make plans around the child, that's sort of the same feeling. And how does this impact your your ability to be independent, to have freedom and to pursue your career? And how do you manage that? I mean, my husband encourages me to be super independent and I'm a very independent person to begin with. So in a lot of ways, sometimes we end up having aspects of our lives that feel like they're separate, which is probably what I would want from a marriage anyway. I don't see myself as the kind of person who would want to like, go to the grocery store with my partner, go to 
Well, actually, sometimes we do go to the grocery store together, but like go to the grocery store, go to the gym, have all the same friends, do all the same stuff. Like that just seems a little strange to me. I didn't take my husband's name when we got married. I still see us as independent people. And I always say that when I die, I want to be cremated and I want like one third of my ashes with my husband's, but then the other two thirds scattered in various other places. So I don't see marriage as something that is like, you know, you completely give up yourself and you completely, um, you know, like meld with this other person. But I think, you know, that the illness definitely affects us in some ways simply because, you know, a lot of our relationship um, or more of it tends to be spent sort of in a domestic situation rather than, um, you know, we haven't been able to travel in a while when he is slightly better. So his relapses last about 90 days. And when he's sort of coming out of it, it's even just the ability to go like, uh, you know, to go to get sushi together or something as simple as going to a local restaurant, you know, a, a block or two away is so amazing for us. And it's just such a joy because it's, it's so special. Did you know that the average woman will spend over $10,000 on razors and 72 days shaving in her lifetime? Are you tired of spending all of this time and money on what is also ranked as the most hated beauty ritual? We are too. Good things our friends at Laser Away have us and our bodies covered. As the nation's top laser hair removal and aesthetic experts, Laser Away offers the most advanced, cutting-edge technology to offer dramatic, permanent results in just a few treatments. Laser Away's treatments are non-invasive, fast, permanent, and can treat all skin tones, leaving you hair-free, carefree, and ready for that last-minute date or beach getaway. Shave time, not your legs. Get up to 75% off laser services and schedule your free consultation today by going to laserway.com love. That's laserway.com love. Part of your independence and your relationship is that you have transitioned between having an open marriage and, and also practicing monogamy. I wanted to know where things stand now and how you, how it's, what it's like to have that kind of fluidity in a marriage. I guess we had, oh, so, okay, so the sort of trajectory of our marriage is we were monogamous for five years, or relationship rather, I should say. We were monogamous for five years. Then we had an open relationship for five years and we've been monogamous now for about two and a half. So, and I, and I'm thinking that, you know, before, before death do us part, we will probably experiment with, <laughs> with non-monogamy again because life is very long. But, um, yeah, it, it's, um, so that's sort of just been our journey and our choice. And, um, we each have our own set of rules for when we're non-monogamous for him. It's that, I like to know everything that goes on. So it's sort of like, I'm, I'm like a wingman. I think it's like a control thing, but <laughs> um, I, ne I never want to be that wife in the dark. Right. Um, but so I'm sort of like the wingman and he'll tell me everything that's going on. And um, I really want to know all the details. It started because he was going to a bachelor party um, after we'd been married for five years or not married. Sorry. After we'd been together for five years, he was going to a bachelor party in Rio and he was like, do you know what goes on in Rio? And um, sex work is, is, it's not legal there, but it's very regulated and it's very much part of the culture. And I actually think that sex work in America um, could probably um, benefit from, from some of the ways that places like Rio and Amsterdam, you know, 
have sex work because it, it's above board. It's not something that, that goes on anyway, but people are penalized for. And um, it's very just fluid and part of the culture. And um, so, and it, you know, and it's really much more like above ground. And so um, I was like, yeah, you know, I know what goes on in Rio. And I, and I thought to him, I was like, you know, honestly, I feel like if you were to have an experience down there and, you know, like hang out with sex worker for, for the time you're there and, you know, have your experiences, like I would be totally cool with that. I think I would. And he was, and I was like, do you want to try it? And he was like, okay, <laughs> yes. And so he did. And then when he came back, um, you know, I was like, okay, I want to hear all the details. And I did. And, and I said, you know, that's great. And I really do feel comfortable with that. But what do I get? So for him, it, it was always, you know, he had to be completely like, I, I wanted to know everything. And for him, he wanted to know nothing. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, I could do pretty much whatever I wanted with whomever I wanted, as long as it wasn't, you know, a friend of his or someone that we're close with. I have a question, though, if you I'm always curious about this. So if he doesn't want to know anything, then where's the line with like lying or kind of just not informing? So if you're going, I'm just giving this example. I don't know if this has ever happened, but if you're going out to meet someone and, you know, and he says, where are you going? Do you lie or do you, are you vague or he just doesn't want to know or how does that work? My euphemism was usually I'm going to a poetry event. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I hooked up with a lot of poets uh-huh. so it was a poetry event right. and often and I went to a lot of poetry events when I lived in New York so <laughs> yeah so that was sort of a white lie I guess you could say and or, he didn't ask any further it was just sort of like no, he didn't, code he really didn't mm-hmm. want to know in fact he often was sort of fighting to know less like I would um, you know I would sort of be asking in roundabout ways these for boy advice, right? Like I would have situations where somebody was being elusive or ghosting and I would sort of try to like sneak information out of him. And sometimes I would get information out of him. And sometimes he would just be like, don't you have, you have girlfriends for this? Um, and like, you know, there were definitely a lot of um, faux pas. Like we both broke the rules a couple of times. Like, and, and it's funny because when you break the rules, it feels kind of just, it feels like it's just, just as much of an infraction, I think, as it might in a marriage if, Maybe not if two people cheat in a marriage, but if there's like a heavy flirtation or, you what know, were if some of almost those? cheating, you know, when I would try to get information, he was like, I don't want to know. And for him, it was um, because I knew everything. We had this one deal. Um, usually for him, I really preferred it if it was um, paid companionship. So if it was a sex worker or somebody who's a professional and if it was not in New York where we were living. So if it was like he would go to Miami or he went to Rio like a, another time. Two, two, two more times after the first Rio trip. Um, and he had been before in the past. He just loves Rio. And so, so for that, um, but there was somebody who um, was what we would call a civilian. Mm-hmm. Um, so not, you know, not a sex worker. And so I gave him like special dispensation in New York to hook up with this woman. And there was, um, I gave, I was like, all right, you have like two or three chances. You can go on like two or three dates. And if you can't seal the deal, like that's it. Like then you're like dating her and I don't want that. And so the first, I think time or two, he didn't seal the deal. And then we went on a vacation to Barcelona. This is when he was still, this is when he was still well enough that he could sometimes do well enough to travel. travel. We had this beautiful vacation. It was actually really wonderful because he had been very sick that year. So to have, to be able to like travel was incredible. And I was like, all right, you have one more chance with this woman, but 
please, can you just like wait a week after we get back from this trip? Cause I just don't want to feel like this trip is like bookend with you, like trying to get it in with another woman. And, <laughs> and he was like, no, but you know, she's going away and blah, blah, blah. And so we sort of thought about that. And in the end, he did end up seeing her, I think like three days after. And we thought about that. There was definitely, you know, I didn't, I, in the, in the end, I was like, oh, like this is a betrayal, but you know, so he sort of, he went against my wishes in that way. So there was that, I think there were like one or two other instances where the rules sort of were bent and it's like the rules are the rules. Do the rules include, so they encompass this idea that, you know, you'd write in the book about some of your online um, flirtations that manifest offline and, and become relationships of sorts. Does it, does having a close flirtatious relationship with someone that isn't consummated, like, is that okay too? Um, well, one of our rules was pr- protect the love at all costs. That was really one of his rules that he laid out. And so with protect the love, you know, that's sort of a nebulous thing and yeah. feelings, emotion, love. Like, I'm not sure I know what that means. Yeah. Right. And I'm a poet. I'm a fantasist. I'm a romantic. I'm a dreamer. And I write a lot of narratives in my head. So I, you know, I have a tendency to fall for people. And I think that was now whether or not we were in an open marriage, I have a tendency to sort of have these imaginary fantasies about people anyway. So I think that's just part of my nature. Like I can have a full relationship in my head with someone. I had a full relationship in my head with basically a Twitter avatar for like two years without ever having sex or hooking up with this person. And, you know, I had a crush on someone from a creative writing class where it went on for like a year and a half in my head before we were ever had an open marriage. So I think I am one of these people who's like prone to this kind of stuff. But um, there was, there were a couple of times where I did fall for people and actually we decided to close our marriage because in the end there was one person who I really fell for. And I just felt like I wasn't going to be able to cut it off with this person unless I sort of had the boundary of monogamy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, like I felt like it would be a threat. It was the one time, it was actually the one time and five years, even though I did get crushes on people and, you know, to get emotionally attached in some ways, like it was the one time I really felt like it could be a threat to the marriage and that I could, you know, potentially see being with someone else. And it was never like I was looking for another husband. It was always guys who were younger than me, probably people who, with whom, if I tried to have a relationship within about three weeks, I'd be like, ah, give me back my husband. (laughs) But, um, you know, but I felt that I really felt so split in terms of my emotions between my husband and this person. And so that was in, that was why we ended up be, becoming monogamous again, because I didn't feel like I was the impetus to cut it off and stay cut off from this person if we didn't sort of have that other boundary. Right. I'm not like a, um, you know, I'm probably never going to be on a panel for polyamory, but it's like, I'm not, I'm really not a person who ever tells others what to do in their relationships. You know, I have like, sometimes I can be a little bit like, judgy in a way about like people who have like two kids and you know they're married two kids and I'm just like uh your kids aren't that exciting but like in general I really keep my eyes on my own I'm very self-centered so Mm -hmm. I'm usually not like judging others it's I'm kind of more judging myself and self-obsessed but so I don't really have any like suggestions for others I'm like do what you want you want to have an open marriage beautiful you want to have a monogamous marriage beautiful Mm -hmm. for me like this is just sort of I'm not even really an advocate for it. I'm just like, this is just sort of my experience. You know, this is my journey and you can do it. Like you can, you can have this if you want, but it's, you know, but monogamy is hard and open marriage is hard. I mean, I guess you can have it. Obviously there's, there's, 
agency. But I think that sort of what you're describing sounds really reasonable and, and workable for, and yet the idea of what you're describing is probably absolutely terrifying to most people. It's so threatening to think about that kind of fluidity. I think that, you know, even people I know whose marriages are not particularly happy would have a hard time sort of with that framework. And it's just interesting. It's not um, or maybe many people do have it. And we just don't talk about it. I'm not sure. I don't know. I mean, it's funny. I definitely felt pretty, you know, most the most of my open marriage took place when I was living in New York, working in an office. So, you know, I was kind of surrounded by more um I don't know. I just feel like office culture tends to be more like it wasn't like I was living in a, on a commune in um, Oregon, like growing hemp, you know, like it tends to be more traditional, even if like politically liberal or even socially liberal, you know, it really, it was the kind of thing where I didn't feel like I could really talk about it, but, but I'm a big mouth. So, you know, people knew and friends all knew, but I didn't, I didn't feel like I really had any like role models at the time or, people who are doing this like it either seemed to be sort of like these polyamorous pods where like because I'd say as a human being I'm very sex positive and amongst others I'm very like live and let live but I never call myself sex positive because I always feel like in sex positive culture it's like everything becomes about being sex positive like right. you be this like warrior and advocate for sex positivity and like a lot of times the people I meet who are sex positive I'm kind of who call themselves sex positive I'm like I don't really want to fuck you like it's <laughs> <laughs> um so you know, I'm like, I guess I'm just more of a slut <laughs> than sex positive or like a a curious romantic who like doesn't want that part of my life where you have first kisses and first fucks to be over. So, but it's maybe also about the sex positive movement is there's there's this political sheen to to everything about sex, which you know, I think can be really unsexy. When sexuality is political in terms of human beings having rights, that's one thing, and that's important. But, like, for my own sexuality, like, I kind of, I feel like if I'm going to push any boundaries, it's really in, like, doing what I do, living my life, and, like, you know, and I do write about it, you know, I, I but it's it's not... I don't know. I'm just kind of sharing my experiences. Like I don't really have, I didn't, the agenda that I went into it with was not to push an agenda. It was really, if I had an agenda, it was the agenda of my own romantic and longing heart. Mm -hmm. You know, the heart that sounds like, is this all there is? How much money do you make? How big is your savings account? These are some of the most personal and maybe uncomfortable questions that someone can ask you. But where does that discomfort come from? On Open Account, a podcast created by Umqua Bank, host Suchin Pak and her guests get open and honest about making, losing, and living with money. You'll hear an NBA star talk about his first professional paycheck, a Daily Show producer recall his parents' penny-pinching, and a husband and wife duo discuss the role that marriage plays in managing their small businesses. And that's just the first three episodes. These conversations wind up being about way more than dollars. They're about culture, power, class, and the complex emotions that drive our financial decisions. Open Account is available wherever you get your podcasts, so download, subscribe, and get a little more comfortable with your money.
You also, though, get at something I think is really interesting and important in the book, which is in one of the chapters, which uh, has one of my favorite chapter titles of all time. It is love like you're trying to fill an insatiable spiritual hole with another person who will suffocate in there. That is the title of the chapter. Um, you describe how you fall in love with a man you meet on the internet, and then what it's like to actually meet in real life, which, you know, is weird and disappointing. And you have so much to live up to after being this kind of anonymous, witty person on the other end of a tweet or an email or a sext. And, you know, I think that online dating and sexting and all of the ways that we can connect with people electronically kind of get people back to this time or place or feeling of of feeling engaged and sexy again. And yet at the same time, it's often for people really utterly disappointing in real life. Well, I've had, I mean, I've had multiple experiences with this and one of them was, one of them was where I had long-term sexting with someone who I'd met like very briefly, but then, but not in that context. And then we, we sexted for a long time and we kind of had an ongoing thing for um, a year and that was really beautiful. And when we would meet, it was like very heightened and that was actually the person for whom I sort of close the relationship, but I've had all kinds of, um, like I had a, I had an affair with a Twitter avatar that, that was unbeknownst to the person for like two years. And in my head, every time the person tweeted, I was, um, you know, they were tweeting for me and, you know, I went to a psychic and I was like, is this person my soulmate? And the psychic was like, um, you need help. And <laughs> he was like, he was like, you need serious help because, you know, I am a writer and I do so in narrative and longing is my food. I mean, it is like the food, you know, it's, it, it's, it's very, it's as old as, I mean, the the poem, the Grecian urn, like mm-hmm. it's, it's so old as the Grecian urn, the woman, the man just about to catch the woman, you know, that moment right before you kiss or right before you meet, that is the moment. Um, or that night where you go out with someone and you're like, so feeling them and you know that you're going to, you know, hook up. And it's just like, it doesn't matter what happens tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you get texted tomorrow. The thing with the internet is that you can have that dopamine. You can have that adrenaline, those literal like drugs that go on your head you can keep resustaining that over and over and never the two shall meet. And every time that um, one new message, two new messages, three new messages blings, I mean, that's some serious dopamine right there. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think now in terms of disappointment, yeah, I mean, if, you know, how many times have we built up someone in our head? How many times have I built up someone in my head on the internet or had a really sexy engagement. And then as soon as you meet the person, you know, it's about the smell, it's about the voice. And you're like, this is not my person. Right. But then I also have had, you know, I'd say a couple, a handful of experiences where the person was really like, you know, where it was super hot in real life and, um, and one where it really was prolonged and, you started your Twitter account and it was anonymous for several years um, before you came mm-hmm. out as Melissa. One of the things that, you know, has is a big part of what you tweet about. And of course, what you write about in the book is is your anxiety um, and depression. And I wondered, what are what are your earliest memories of experiencing acute anxiety and and how does it manifest now? 
Um, well, okay, let's see. So I've always had general anxiety disorder, um, although it wasn't diagnosed till I was like probably late. Um, my general anxiety disorder was diagnosed like very, very late teens, like maybe when I was 19 or 20. And that manifested as a kid of just fearful of like every, 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 everything. So hypochondriac right from like day one, very afraid of just like if I went on a little trip, like, or if I went to camp and my bag was put under the bus, terrified, like my bag just definitely wasn't getting there. Like I was going to be the one with like that kind of thing mm-hmm. where, so just fear, fear, fear. Um, and then when I was in about seventh grade, I started having nightmares and being terrified of fires happening in my family's house. Mm-hmm. I just these visions of like the house burning down. And then when I was a year later, I kept having these visions of I'm Jewish. So another Holocaust. I mean, certainly there have been Holocausts in the world since the 1940s, Jewish Holocaust, but Holocaust happening to the Jews in America. I started having these visions of that. And, um, and so that, and, and was like pretty plagued by it. And, um, and then it sort of, my anxiety sort of, I was able to like channel it into an eating disorder, which is a very nice place to put your anxiety. It's like a really handy container, um, in high school. And then I was, sort of able to channel it into drugs and alcohol and self-medicate with that for a while. But what ended up happening was when you self-medicate, eventually it's like the anxiety and sort of the the feelings underneath it start to come through, like they need to be heard and felt. And all of the feelings that I was repressing, I started getting panic attacks and it developed into panic disorder when I was 21. And and I've had panic attacks, you know, for, for over a decade now since I was 21, but I did get sober in my early twenties and I've been sober now for, um, over a decade and the panic attacks are nothing like they were. Cause I used to basically like withdrawal from drugs and alcohol in the morning and then have to like take pills to kind of come down and get through the panic attacks all day. And now I do take prescribed medicine, but it's as prescribed. I don't take benzos. I take like, you know, SSRIs, Effexor, Prozac. And so the, the drugs and alcohol would in a way kind of spur more panic attacks? They would exacerbate it, mm-hmm. right? So it's like they would they would repress it, and then as soon as I would come down, the panic attacks would be even worse. But in sobriety, every few years I go through, and you all have panic attacks from time to time, but every couple of years, I'd say every about, it's been about every year and a half, I'll go through like a really bad cycle of them. Usually it's just triggered by having really one horrible one, and then I'm like, I get really terrified of having another one, and so, and I'll get into like this cycle where I start having them every day and it's really painful and very alienating. What do they look like? I'm really good at hiding them, but because we're on the phone, if we were in person, I could easily be having one. Because when I'm, you, the, the biggest catalyst for me is if I'm in a situation where it would seem weird if I just got up and left. Mm-hmm. So like if we were in a room together taping this podcast, because we're doing this, you know, remotely, you know, I'm sitting here kind of lounging in the air conditioning and um, by myself. Right. And rarely do I have them when I'm by myself. It's usually with other human beings. And what escalates is, is a situation where it, I would be afraid to leave. Like I would think that I would be judged or be weird if I left. But what happens is first I'll just have any kind of bodily sensation. And then I'll be like, what was that? And I get a surge of adrenaline and I'm like, oh my God, am I dying? And what ends up happening is um, I get tightness in my chest. I get shortness of breath. I'm like a suffocating feeling. So I feel like I really can't breathe. I'll get a rapid heartbeat often. Sometimes I'll get tingling in my limbs. 
I get like a dizziness and sort of mm-hmm. sometimes a vertigo. My vision gets a little blurry. And then sometimes, which is kind of probably the worst thing of all, and this only happens when it's a really bad panic attack, um, like everything sort of gets this like surreal slash hyper real quality where I feel like I can sort of, I'm watching life and it looks like a movie. So all of these things have like physical reasons. But the thing is, is when these, when you get these physical sensations and you don't see a cause of danger, like there's no horror movie, there's no roller coaster, there's no animal chasing you in the jungle, there's no danger. You start to look for the signs of danger. And when you don't see any danger, you think, well, I must be dying. Like, right. because you feel, you feel like there's an emergency and there's doom, you know, that that's, which is a good thing if there's actually danger, but if there's no danger, you it's, it's like, it's very hard in your rational mind to say this is just a panic attack because everything in your body is saying danger. Do you think, I'm, I'm just curious, like if you had to guess why hundreds of thousands of people follow you on Twitter, including celebrities like Miley Cyrus, um, what is it that they're, what is it that you're saying about anxiety, depression, sex, love, the internet that is resonating with so many people? I, I, I don't know. I guess maybe because I'm funny. <laughs> um, I think I'm funny. You um, are. And I think there's like a, um, you know, even the account was anonymous for a very long time. And I really felt like I was able to say things that I personally wouldn't feel comfortable saying as myself. And so I think that even though in a way it was a masked account because it was anonymous, I definitely took the mask off, like the mask that we sort of all wear. Um, and, you know, every, we have this need to, like, to prove, like, I'm okay, I'm okay. Like, am I okay? I'm okay. And, like, to be able to say I'm not okay, but to be able to say it in, like, a kind of funny way, which I think is a little bit less, like, frightening for people, it's like, it's kind of a relief when someone else is like, yo, like, I don't have the answer. Like, I'm terrified. Cause mm-hmm. it's like, oh, you don't have it either. I don't have it. Cause I, I feel like when I created the account, you know, I worked in an office. I, I was in the, an assistant director of publicity. So I was like in a, a more elevated position. Like I managed people, you know, like I couldn't, no one could know. And then like socially too, you know, it's just, it's hard to, let people know you're not doing okay. And even in therapy, you know, we can sometimes inhabit different personas for our therapists. We want to be like <laughs> by our therapist. We want to be their favorite patient. We don't want to need, like for me, a big one in life in general, I never want to be too needy, right? I'm like, uh, if I'm vulnerable, that means I'm a loser. So like, I don't want to need anything from you. I'd rather just like not need and like, like collapse inward, <laughs> you know, like I'd rather implode than explode. Um, is really my thing. On the first page of the book, you say that on day one on Earth, you discovered how not to be enough. And I just wanted to end by asking if the success of the Twitter account in this book, and you have a new book of poetry coming out soon, does the success change that feeling at all? Oh, absolutely not. (laughs) I'm like a sieve. I'm like a strainer. Mm Mm-hmm. So everything, all the good shit just like washes through me. I mean, you know, there are moments of like great, there are moments of great dopamine triumphs. And, and certainly when people email me and say the book help, is helping them, that's really beautiful because I've gotten a lot of emails and that's really cool and kind of something I didn't expect. I was just hoping that like, 
everyone didn't think it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, because I set kind of low, I have low expectations for, I don't know, I just always think everyone's going to hate me or whatever. But so that's been really beautiful. But I've had enough poetry books come out in the past to know that like, any like great reviews or lovely media, you know, that's all time sensitive. Like it really, unfortunately our mental health and our self-esteem, it's really an inside job. You know, it's like that piece is like, it's just not anything. I will continue to try for the rest of my life to get it through sexy people and accomplishment and um, internet attention and, you know, only eating candy and, you know, a, a, a myriad of shiny things. But like, in the end, it just unfortunately fucking has to come from within. So I really am like a sieve and like, yeah, I say unfortunately kind of jokingly. I think it's, it's. Well, it's definitely a lot harder that way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a pain in the ass. Who wants to give it to them? Like, do you really want to like, who wants to give it to themselves? Like that takes work and like (laughs) years of development and like, no, like I would just rather like, you know, have sex with someone and be told I'm beautiful and have that like sustain me forever. But unfortunately it has not. And I've tried. (laughs) It's not like I haven't tried. I've tried and I will continue to try. On that bummer of a note, (laughs) I'd like to thank you, Melissa Broder, for being on The Labor of Love today. Sure. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Labor of Love. Email me your questions, comments, and suggestions for topics and guests at tlolpodcast at gmail.com. I'd like to thank our producer, Kristen Meinzer, and our editor, Tim Einenkel. If you enjoyed the episode, please review and subscribe on iTunes, where you'll also find more podcasts from Real Simple. You can subscribe to The Labor of Love at iTunes.com slash Panoply or at Panoply.fm. I'm Lori Leibovich, and I'll see you next time on The Labor of Love.